0: You're listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We will be joined by cancer experts to discuss blood cancer diagnosis, treatment, side effects management, and the importance of clinical trials. They will share their experience in treating patients and discuss strategies for optimal patient care. Let's get the conversation started.
1: Welcome to Treating Blood Cancers, an LLS podcast series for professionals. I'm Dr. Ken Miller. I'm a medical oncologist and an LLS volunteer, and I want to thank all of you so much for joining us for this episode. Today, we're going to be discussing updates in the treatment of AML, acute myeloid leukemia, including reviewing the goals of treatment, standard of care, and an update on clinical trials, including the LLS Beat AML Master Trial. And I just want to reflect for a minute, but I remember vividly actually being a medical student and it was my first month on the wars and my attending, by the way, was Dr. Ken Miller, who was one of my mentors. But I remember we were treating those patients with seven and three. And I'll just share with you, I remember, you know, maybe three, four years ago doing the same thing. So many things did not change, but so much now has changed. So it's a really exciting time. Today we're going to be joined by Dr. Wendy Stock who is the Anjuli Seth Nyack Professor in Leukemia and a Professor of Medicine in the Section of Hematology and Oncology at the University of Chicago Comprehensive Cancer Center. We're also joined by Dr. Toyosi Odenike who is a Professor of Medicine and Director of the Leukemia Program in the Section of Hematology and Oncology also at the University of Chicago. So Wendy and Toyosi, I want to welcome you and thank you for being with us. Thank you. So again, looking back, there has been a lot of progress in treating AML and there's at least on my part a great sense of hope that things will continue to improve. And let me start out with a question about that For so many years it was seven and three to treat AML and the changes took a long time to happen. As you look back, what are some of the reasons for that? that it's been such a long process. I'm just wondering.
2: Well, I'll start the conversation, and then I'll let Dr. Odenike take over. I think one of the reasons was that we've done a lot of trials in acute myeloid leukemia. We've tried a number of cytotoxic drugs that have been added to 7 plus 3. None of those drugs really rose to significantly improved outcome levels. And therefore, we had sort of stuck with 7 plus 3 because we didn't have anything better with the agents that we had over the last several decades. This all changed a number of years ago when we started developing not only improved versions of 7 plus 3, potentially, but mostly because of the advent of what we call molecularly targeted therapies that some of which have been added to seven plus three and have improved outcome. And I'll let Dr. Odenike take over from there and explain a little bit
3: more about that. Thank you very much. Yes, I agree that the advent of molecularly targeted therapies is really moving the field forward now in the treatment of acute myeloid leukemias. So. Previously, we were employing a one-size-fits-all approach, and now it is commonplace when we meet a patient with a new diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia. We want to know as much as we possibly can, and as rapidly as possible, with regard to what the gene mutations are that may be driving or contributing to driving of that disease so for example we want to know does this individual have a FLT 3 mutation because we have targeted therapeutics that work against that mutation and that when combined for example with intensive chemotherapy such as seven plus three has been demonstrated to be superior to using seven plus three alone. And then there are multiple other instances where there are mutations that perhaps occur that may not be as important in terms of upfront therapy, but that may be important when the disease relapses and might provide us an opportunity to bring out that targeted agent at that point in time to try to put the disease back in remission. So targeted therapeutics has rapidly become commonplace for our patients.
1: Many of us, when first in oncology and hematology started out more looking at histology and morphology and subtyping leukemias that way, What is the role of looking at subtypes, you know, using the FAB criteria, whatever it may have been, looking at how to subclassify acute leukemia that way versus molecular? How are they different? How do they integrate? I'd love to get your perspective.
3: I would say that from the standpoint of figuring out how to treat the patient, the genetics, to a large degree, override the FAB subclassification. Pathology will always be important. We need it to make the diagnosis, first of all, and to be able to sort of follow what's going on with the leukemia over time, right? We're constantly referring to the pathologist to help us make that diagnosis. But when I want to figure out how to treat a patient, knowing that the patient is F8B-M5 isn't going to necessarily point me in the direction of, you know, what's the drug that I need to pick to be able to improve this patient's outcome. And I think that has led the WHO, the World Health Organization, over time to revise the classification of these acute myeloid leukemias to really emphasize the role of genetics. There is one subset of acute myeloid leukemia which is called acute promyelocytic leukemia. It is the one subtype of acute myeloid leukemia that we all agree on is a dire emergency just in terms of making a very rapid diagnosis because Doing that also influences outcome. It allows us to rapidly implement specific therapy for that disease, which is so important in assuring that the patient does well. And how do we rapidly make that diagnosis in that particular subset? It's all about pathology. So actually looking at those acute myeloid leukemia blasts, and recognizing that this is not generic AML, this is acute promyelocytic leukemia and allows us to rapidly give the patient all transretinoic acid, which prevents the bleeding and clotting complications that are life-threatening in that particular subset. So in that instance, I would say, pathology is everything. Of course, we then still confirm the molecular genetics of that particular entity, but rapid recognition by a pathologist or hematologist, looking under the light microscope can be life-saving because it allows us to pick the right treatment immediately while we're waiting for the results of the molecular genetics.
1: So I wanted to ask you, there are a group of patients, in fact, I'd be interested in what percentage who have normal cytogenetics, their molecular testing for mutations is negative. This goes to sort of the biology of cancer for patients like that, what is driving the disease?
2: yeah, that's such an interesting question, yeah. and it always these days is a bit vexing to us when we don't see anything that we can think about in terms of what caused this disease and it still happens a fair amount of time and I think that a lot of that is based on the way we currently analyze leukemias and try to look at the genes that are mutated, and what we probably know in a way, but don't know therapeutically or diagnostically how many of these cases exist, but there are a lot of genomic abnormalities that are beyond the actual DNA that we monitor in the genome that is dysregulated. And this can be called epigenetic changes or outside of the actual DNA sequence. Sometimes it may actually have to do with the DNA sequence, but in ways that we are not yet able to detect using the methods that we currently have. But we believe that there are many, many other ways to destabilize the genome in patients with acute myeloid leukemia outside of the exact chromosome translocations, which were first described as abnormalities in leukemia and being related to their development, to now the commonly recurring mutations that we know contribute or are very important in the development and progression of leukemias. So we do have a lot of new ways that are starting to be looked at to make these other observations in a more regimented manner. But it is at this point in time, just like it was 20 years ago for us, we knew that there were many things that were going on in these cells. We just couldn't put our finger on what it was. Now we are able to identify many genetic mutations and pretty soon I have a feeling we'll be able to do it at a much higher level in the epigenome, perhaps in the RNA sequencing, perhaps in the signaling pathways, the proteomic, abnormalities that occur so there's still a lot to understand not the least of which is why these things occur in the first place yeah, so yeah. true
1: and by the way I will make a disclosure personal one actually my wife Joan had uh, AML 20 years ago and is okay
2: oh one that's time. wonderful that's <laughs> yeah. we yeah. were holding our breath and that's <laughs> no that's I
1: could good. tell But to be honest, we are very, very, very fortunate. And I obviously wish that for everyone. But the big question, at least when it happened, was how did this happen? Why Mm -hmm. did this happen? What's the abnormality? And we never really found it. But fortunately, it was treatable. The disease was treatable.
2: That boosts our spirits immensely. Every time we hear of a long-term survivor,
1: it's very happy for us. You know, it's twenty. Yeah, we're well, hearing uh, it more
2: and more frequently. That's the yes. best news.
1: But, but that's isn't why it we do what we do. But let me ask that as a question because it was one that some of the listeners, actually knowing that I'd be interviewing, wanted to ask. What are the goals of care when you're treating someone with AML? What are the goals of care?
3: That's an excellent question. I mean, we can say that in general, you know, when we meet a new patient with acute myeloid leukemia, we are hoping for a cure. I mean, most of us as doctors, that's why we went into this in the first place. But it is also true that acute myeloid leukemia is by and large a disease of older adults. And, Mm. you know, sometimes patients are diagnosed at an age when they're say in their eighties, you know, late seventies, at the time of diagnosis, that of course, doesn't necessarily mean that such individuals, you know, cannot be cured, but the molecular characteristics, the genetic characteristics of the disease, sometimes at the present time might preclude the ability to be able to move on at some point to potentially curative therapy. So older age usually goes hand in hand, not always, but often with very poor risk genetics, Mm -hmm. in terms of the genetics of the leukemia, which then means that standard approaches, you know, tend not to lead to a cure. And that when the disease is in a remission, the way to potentially move those leukemias to a cure would be to do say an allogeneic stem cell transplant or bone marrow transplant. And sometimes that's not feasible maybe because of other medical conditions and so on that preclude the ability to safely undergo a transplant. So in some older adults, although we would want to be able to cure them, sometimes the next best thing to that is being able to control the disease for as long as possible to potentially prolong life, including good quality of life. And that means In the present day and age having the very best therapies possible you know agents that are tolerable that can be used for long periods of time and that can put the leukemia under control for very long periods of time and this is a conversation that we often have to have with patients you know Mm -hmm. at the outset right the goal is get it into a remission right but then remission is you know, it's controlled right now. Does mm-hmm. that mean it will be controlled indefinitely? Indefinite control equals cure. You yes. know, can we yes. get there?
1: So in a sense, there is, you know, one goal of is curative therapy and the other right. is prolonged remission right. and a good lifestyle is what I think yes. I'm hearing today. Wendy, along those lines, let me ask you, and, and just for a minute, let's focus on older adults. Let's say you see a patient who's 85 now with, we'll say, normal cytogenetics or abnormal. What's a standard approach now for older patients who want to be treated? How would you look at that situation? What would you do?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. And of course, again, to some degree, it depends a little bit on the molecular genetics of the disease. Although when you're 85 years old, getting very intensive chemotherapy, which might be the appropriate thing for certain genetic subsets, may not, as Toyosi said, may not be feasible. And fortunately, in the last couple of years, we've had a major revolution in our ability to really put a lot of patients' diseases into remission, and these remissions are durable. And with treatment that is generally quite well tolerated, even in much older adults. And that has to do with the idea that was developed many years back of using a class of agents called hypomethylating agents. The two drugs that are approved, there's actually more than two now, just recently, are decitabine and azacitidine. And we have found, and in a beautiful paper that was very recently published, the addition of a drug called venetoclax, which targets the survival pathways that are turned on in so many cancers, including acute myeloid leukemia, to be turned off. And so combining that agent with one of these hypomethylating agents has really revolutionized very quickly, at least in this country, the way that we approach treatment of older adults with AML. That's not to say that we can't even do better, and we hope we will over time, but it has changed the complexion so much because now we're actually able to get the majority, according to these studies, of older patients with AML into a complete remission using these combinations. And in many cases, these remissions can be very durable. Just as an example, one of the most remarkable cases is one that both Toyosi and I are well aware of. She is actually the patient of one of our colleagues at the University of Chicago and was enrolled on this trial at the very beginning of this trial. Mm -hmm. And now she's literally more than four years into the treatment, still getting the treatment Mm -hmm. and still in a complete remission. And she is in her 80s. And so it's been a very wonderful thing to see because this is not something that either of us ever saw previously and she had a particularly high risk leukemia in terms of the molecular genetic background of this disease so Mm -hmm. it's extraordinarily exciting and one of our shining examples of improvement with a very good quality of life she comes into the hospital for her treatment for ease of transportation reasons but otherwise is out of the hospital and not getting transfusions.
1: So by the way, let me ask you about this, because this mm-hmm. comes up in solid tumors too, especially with immunotherapy. Yeah. But if she said to you, let's say you were her doctor at the fifth year, you know, doc, I, geez, I sort of think I'm okay. Is there a time <laughs> that you stop this therapy? <laughs> I'll let
2: either one of you. Let Dr. Odenike, answer. That. <laughs> <laughs> it's a billion-dollar question.
3: Sure. I know. I want to say that experiment has been done and it failed. So, in general, these therapies they are not curative, although they can provide in some patients very long remissions, which always exactly brings up that question of you yes. know. I have other things to do with my life than coming up and down every few weeks to get this treatment. Can't I go to Florida for six months and forget about it for a bit? Um, Yeah. And we have had patients who we've counseled, but they're like, look, I did this because I wanted to have some really good time. And yes, my quality of life is decent, but would be so much better if I could just take a break for a while. And, you know, relapse has been inevitable under those circumstances. Although in today's day and age, right, with targeted therapeutics, we can sometimes sequence the leukemia cells again and find, quote unquote, an Achilles heel for which we can then switch to a different drug, you know, a different targeted agent to put patients back in a remission. But our general advice is stay on it since it's working for you. We don't have any evidence yet that this is curative because many patients will ultimately relapse, you know, some even unfortunately while still on the treatment. But it has certainly dramatically, as Wendy has indicated, you know altered you know the way we treat patients, older adults with acute myeloid leukemia and their outlook in general.
1: By the way, something that I've been wondering, because I send off a lot of samples, I'm more of a solid tumor doctor in many ways, but we send off a lot for genomic testing, and sometimes there's surprises. So along those lines, I'd just be interested, as you've looked at these genomic panels, any surprises in AML where you said, whoa, maybe we should pull out a drug from the lung cancer doctors or the breast cancer doctors?
2: Yeah, that is a really interesting question. And actually, occasionally, we do see a mutation in a pathway that isn't typically deregulated or not commonly associated with AML, but that is associated with other cancers. And we were recently actually in our clinic just talking about a patient with a mutation that is more common in urothelial cancers Mm -hmm. and we're wondering for example whether one of the agents that has been used or is starting to be tested anyway in this subset might be thought about for this particular patient that doesn't happen so often Mm -hmm. often when we find a surprise It's a surprise for which we have no particular trick up our sleeve from any group of patients. But I think it is interesting and worth paying attention to what's going on in other areas of our field, which is getting so complicated now to keep up to date. I admire you, Ken, for having to sort of keep really abreast of so many different mutational patterns and targeted agents at least for us we're allowed so nicely to focus in and so we sometimes lose track of other important pathways that may be targetable now or new ideas about immunologic therapies that are coming from the solid tumor world that we might be able to sort of hijack into the world of leukemia
1: Mm -hmm. you know along those lines again these are questions i've sort of stored up over the years just thinking about these diseases. But, you know, you take this, let's say, a well, it's a fairly non-homogeneous group of people that have AML because they're each a little bit different. But you okay. you treat them, let's say, with the same regimen and a percentage become long-term survivors. And unfortunately, many, many do not. Again, your hypothesis, your educated guess on this, is it that for some people, the disease is so sensitive, you literally kill all the cells, all the stem cells, et cetera, Or does it have to do with immune function or other things for that matter?
3: So I wanted to rephrase that question a bit to make sure I I got the gist of it, which is why are some within the same genetic subtype, maybe? Why are some curable and others not?
1: Yes, people go into remission. And what are some of the theories about why for some the disease never comes back and for others it does?
3: right exactly so i think for a long time we've thought collectively as a group that it probably has to do with minimal residual disease you know that when we think that we got it all as some surgeons would say i went in there i cut out that cancer i got it all
1: we didn't Mm -hmm. really
3: get it all right so even when the leukemia looked like it was in a remission and by our most sophisticated techniques, we still really couldn't detect residual leukemia that somehow there must have been, certainly if you can detect it generally, Mm -hmm. it will come back to haunt you in many instances. But even I think when in cases with measurable residual disease, we can't really find any evidence of that and the disease still comes back. We think that it's probably because there were some cells lurking there uh, still. But the question is, why does that happen in some instances, whereas in other instances, Mm -hmm. it doesn't, right? Yeah, it could be immunologic, right? It's the power of that human being's immune system to really continue to maintain an active immune surveillance and get rid of those cells or keep them at least at a level where they don't again gain a growth advantage and then manifest as relapse. But I think this is largely conjecture at this point.
2: I was going to make another wild conjecture. I think the (laughs) immunologic one is less wild for sure. But I also think that different people have different sensitivities two agents, and we have seen it more, I think, potentially in the world of acute lymphoblastic leukemia, where certain Mm -hmm. polymorphisms exist that render the leukemia cells exquisitely sensitive to the agents that we use. Mm -hmm. And I have a hunch that similar underlying genetics in AML, in patients with AML, or patients, people in general, exist, and that the drugs that we use And some people are exquisitely sensitive and the cells die. And some of those patients also may have the worst toxicities because their other cells in their body are also sensitive. But maybe that renders the leukemia cells also more susceptible to the poisons that we're giving. I'm not sure that that would be true for some of our other more targeted agents, but perhaps there are ways that we don't yet understand that Um, are inherent to the person and not just other than the immune system that render their cells more sensitive to killing.
1: Yeah, interesting. So, all right, if if I'm still interviewing 10 years from now, I'm going to come back and ask you.
2: (laughs) I think Dr. Odenike's hypothesis will be shown to be true.
1: (laughs) So, I want to ask about, at least in my mind, they're somewhat related, but what is the latest up to date in terms of uh, monitoring for minimal residual disease? And then again, I think it's somewhat related, which is what progress have we made in terms of maintenance therapy? So, all right, Toyosi, if you would say a couple words about minimal residual disease.
3: Yeah, I will start, and then I'm going to let Wendy finish that one for sure. So when we think about measurable residual disease, I think in ALL, for example, it had been shown for a long time now that this is so important. In AML, I think we've definitely now, I would say, coming into the 21st century with regard to that, And where we also now, in acute myeloid leukemia, strongly believe that our goal should be, if at all possible, having patients in a measurable residual disease negative state. Mm -hmm. So instead of just saying, oh, yeah, we're in a complete remission, we want them to be in an MRD negative complete remission, if at all possible, because... There have been elegant studies that demonstrate that if you're in a CR, but you still have measurable residual disease, then you're at very high likelihood of relapsing, and your overall outcome is inferior in terms of survival, etc., to someone who is in a measurable residual disease negative remission. There are issues with standardization, terms of measurement of MRD. So I'll just stick with the word MRD now, so I'm not saying measurable residual disease over and over again. There are issues in terms of standardization. What methods should be used? Should we stick with flow cytometry? Should we be doing next generation sequencing based MRD evaluation? Should we be doing both? There are some gene mutations that lend themselves very well to the tracking of MRD and that have been shown to be quite predictive whereas for other gene mutations it's much less and so there's still a lot to figure out in that sense but I think generally as an acute myeloid leukemia community we're moving in that direction right Mm -hmm, if I mm -hmm. had AML today I definitely would want to be in an MRD negative CR if there was a good way of defining that in a meaningful Uh, fashion.
1: uh, uh, Wendy, maintenance therapy, what's Uh, new?
2: There is something new, actually. For years, many trials have tried to investigate what to do once you're done with the aggressive therapy in AML without transplant, usually. And none of those trials, be it with chemotherapy, low-dose chemotherapy, or with immunologic-based approaches to stimulate the immune system. None of them in big randomized trials showed any benefit, but just recently there is a new drug that is now approved. It's an oral form of azacitidine, and it has been approved for use as maintenance therapy in a subset of patients with AML who are in a remission after chemotherapy. And while it's not a perfect solution, in other words, not everybody stays in remission, it Mm -hmm. has definitely been shown to prolong the remissions. And it's apparently quite tolerable in general, although there are always some downsides to taking any medicine that might suppress leukemia can also suppress other blood cells as well. And this drug is now approved. And will start being used, I think, quite regularly perhaps to try to maintain or prolong remissions. And I think now our goal will be maybe we can do better and maybe we can use a different dose or schedule or combination Mm -hmm. to make Mm -hmm. this an even better solution. But it's the first actual agent that was approved for maintenance therapy and AML and it's just happened in this last several months.
1: Very exciting. It really is. Well, in a sense, I've sort of left probably the most important thing in some ways to last, but I want to talk about the LLS BEAT-AML master trial. So let me ask Toyosi, can you just sort of uh, give us an overview of what is the trial? And then, Wendy, I'll pick on you, if you don't mind, just to talk about sort of updates.
3: Sure. The BEAT-AML trial is this very unique effort, which is multi-institutional. So it's going across a number of institutions uh, in the country that is sponsored by the Leukemia Lymphoma Society. And the goal is really to be able to improve outcomes for patients with acute myeloid leukemia by leveraging the very potent power of the our understanding of the molecular genetics of the acute myeloid leukemia so patients with a new diagnosis of acute myeloid leukemia offered the opportunity to participate in this trial they undergo their bone marrow biopsies and samples from that bone marrow biopsy is sent and rapidly analyzed for specific gene mutations known to be associated with Acute myeloid leukemia. And the goal is to have all this done in less than a week, reported back to the doctor, and along with a recommendation of which of the sub protocols under that big umbrella of this BID AML master protocol should the patient be enrolled on. So, for example, if you have an IDH1 mutation, this is the particular subam, you should go on, which employs the use of a drug that targets that specifically, potentially in combination with other agents, et cetera. And the goal is to therefore develop therapies that are targeted, they're more tolerable, potentially therefore can improve outcome over time, especially though not exclusively in older adults with
1: acute myeloid leukemia. All right, any updates that you wanna share, Wendy?
2: Well, I think the lovely thing about the BEAT-AML trial is that it's constantly evolving and in terms of new agents and new targets. And the cool thing I think is that it's trying to be fairly flexible and as current as possible. So, whereas when we first started, many of the trials, as Toyosi just said, were targeted to a specific mutation, which they still are, but we used a single agent to target that particular mutation. And now we're starting to get very interesting, I think, combinations of novel agents that may enhance the response in that particular genetic subset. So I would say that it's a fairly, I've always liked the word nimble. It's kind of Mm a cute word. Uh, And I, I think it is a fairly nimble trial in the sense that the evolution of the sequential trials is pretty quick and trying to keep pace with the exciting biological discoveries and pharmacological development that is taking place all across the world. And so, The other nice thing is that it's not necessarily linked to a particular pharma company. It's really linked to trying to target the biology of the disease and utilizing the wonderful developments that have been made by pharma to allow investigators within the BAML umbrella to design new trials that sometimes involve combinations of drugs, potentially from even different pharma companies in one trial, which has always been a quite a big challenge. So that's mm-hmm. the newest evolutionary piece, is sort of the multi-agent targeted approach.
1: Which, at least in other diseases, and and even as you're describing some of the new work in older adults, the mm-hmm. idea of combination sounds like it's more likely to be successful. At least, we hope. exactly, we hope. So again, this is Dr. Ken Miller. Just to say, this has been a wonderful discussion with Dr. Wendy Stock, Dr. Toyosi, and talking about AML and some of the really very exciting things that are happening. And I know, uh, speaking from, again, my own perspective as a husband and as a doctor, but just to thank you for the work you do. So, Wendy and Toyosi, thank you again. Thank
2: Thank you you so
3: much. Thank you.
1: As mentioned on this episode, please visit the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society's website for more information on the Beat AML master trial. And you can go to lls.org slash beataml. For additional resources on acute myeloid leukemia, please be sure to check out our website, lls.org/slash aml. And for a listing of our continuing education activities and healthcare professional resources, visit lls.org. Slash CE. For any questions or to refer a patient, please contact our Information Resource Center. Information specialists provide personalized one-on-one support to help patients learn about their disease, treatments, financial, and other support resources. Your patient can also work one-on-one with an LLS clinical trial nurse navigator who will personally assist them throughout the entire clinical trial process. And clinical trial nurse navigators are registered nurses with experience in blood cancers. You can call 800-955-4572 for more information. Finally, I encourage all of you to please sign up to receive notification of future podcast episodes by subscribing at treatingbloodcancers.org. LLS also offers a series of podcasts for patients and families at lls.org slash podcast. And we look forward to having you join us on future podcasts.
0: Thanks for listening to Treating Blood Cancers, the LLS podcast series for professionals. We can be found on iTunes and other podcatchers. You can subscribe at www.treatingbloodcancers.org and provide your suggestions for future topics. Visit our archive section on our website for other great podcasts. Be sure to rate and review us on iTunes. Keep up with LLS by following us on Twitter at LLSUSA and on Facebook at the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society. And access our professional continuing education activities by visiting LLS.org CE. Let's keep the conversation going. Until next time.